You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. This week's sermon is taught by pastor of Next Generations, Mark Hockley. Good morning, everyone. My name is Pastor Mark. It is a privilege to be with all of you. Um, I see that some of you took my suggestion to move seats, and some of you are still praying about it. Um, so good on you for that. I'm glad you're praying. That's excellent. Um, let's go together in prayer, and then we're going to dive into Titus chapter 3 together this morning. God, we come before you and we praise you. God, we thank you that uh, we can come to you by your shed blood on the cross, Lord, and we, I am so grateful for that, Lord, and we say thank you as a church together. Um, we pray, God, for Pastor Ben and Will this morning in India. God, I pray that you would be with them. I pray that you would protect them. God, keep them safe. Lord, would you move mightily in um, their hearts and in their lives and also in the lives of the Christians that they hope to bless and encourage God, we pray that um, through this trip that our brothers and sisters in India would feel the unity of the church um, and know that we, as brothers and sisters here, care about them. And I pray that we would know the same thing from their side and what a beautiful thing it is to be prayed for across the globe. God, I also just want to come this morning and say thank you for our church. Lord, it's been such a blessing going through Titus and seeing um, the body. And I just want to come say thank you for Calvary. God, we have wonderful people here, people that um, love you. God, people that are kind and generous and caring, people that are welcoming. Um, God, I thank you that Calvary is a church that is willing to, to move, is willing to change, is willing to be pushed. God, and I think we've seen that blessing of growth as you move in us, God, and we say thank you for that. I thank you. Um, that um, Calvary is a church who's praying and growing in prayer. God, just thank you for these people. And I pray that um, this morning, as I know so many are, are already devoted to good works, God, that we would be even more wholly growing in that area, devoted to good works as a body together. We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, re- let's read Titus chapter 3 together, and it will tell us where we're going. Titus chapter 3. It says this, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasure, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness of God and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of the regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. 
But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. For a person who stirs up division after warning him once, then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you to do your best to come to me and Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. And so I'm going to give you our outline this morning, a little bit different than normal. Here's our outline for you. I wanted to give it to you visually today um, so that you can see very clearly. The, the text breaks down very clearly, and it's going to show us where we're going to go. So in the yellow there at the top, we see the examples of good works that we're supposed to be devoted to. And then in the pink, we see the why. We see the motivation for living devoted to good works. Then in the orange, we see the results of the gospel is good works, confirming that. In the green, then we see the opposite of good works. And then red, um, we, we find out that division is an enemy of the gospel in good works. And so we're going to work our way through the text just like that. So um, you notice from the text breakdown, it's going to be a little bit different than normal because normally we do the application near the end. But today we're going to start with the application because that's where the text starts. So we're going to start with the application, what we are to be devoted to, and then we're going to go look at why. And so let's look at verses 1 and 2 together. So right off the bat, we've got a doozy, um, right? Be submissive to rulers and authorities, and this could be a whole sermon itself, um, couldn't it, right, in light of everything that we've gone through the past few years, right? Um, but if you guys had a nickel for every time, I said, we don't have time to dive into it completely, but here's two things that I want to leave you with as we consider this. Remember last week when we were talking about submission, and I told you it was part of God's design throughout Scripture in a number of different institutions, in different things that he set up. Um, and this is an example. We see it here clearly. What we also need to remember is that when the rulers and authorities overstep, right, we ultimately serve God and we don't serve men. And so much of the discussion in the past few years was centered around that, wasn't it? Trying to wrestle through these truths. And that was a good and valid discussion to have um, and I think it's a good and valid discussion as long as we also abide by the rest of the verse. See what it says in the rest of the verse, right? To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. I think this is where some of us came up short in these past few years as I was praying about this text this week. God was showing me instances where he's like, Mark, you clearly failed in these areas in the last few years. And so I just pray um, for me as a church, as a nation, um, as Christians, that as the next challenging thing comes along in society, would we deal with it in an increasingly godly way compared to how we dealt with things the last time around. The other thing that I want to talk about just with submission to rulers and authorities is this. I think I might have told some of you this story. I don't remember who I tell what to. Uh, my 
my dad used to um, coach me hockey for a number of years. And there was one game where the other team was really coming after me on the ice. I was little and fun to hit. Um, and so one of the other coaches on the bench asked my dad why he wasn't yelling at the refs trying to get calls for his son. And my dad, I remember this, he turned to the coach and told him, he said, if I try to undermine the authority of the person that's over my son, whenever I disagree with them, what will that teach him to do when he disagrees with my authority? And that really stuck with me as a kid and stuck with me to this day. And so I want to just encourage you in this parents, grandparents, if we want our kids to submit to us, we must pattern within reason, right? There are, there are things we know in Scripture to go outside of that, but within reason, being willing to submit to authority that we disagree with, right? It, apparently, right here in the text, it says it's part of our Christian testimony. It's an example of the good works that we are to be devoted to in this passage. And I don't think they needed to be reminded to be submissive to rulers and authorities in the things that they agreed with, right? What are they being reminded to do? to submit even when it's hard, even when they disagreed. The next thing that we see here is that we are to be obedient people. And so I want to just dive a little deeper into this word obedience and talk for a minute about what it really means. And I've got four things for you to consider. And here's the first one. Obedience brings deeper pleasure than sin. Marshall Seagull says this, Obedience brings far deeper pleasure than sin, both now and in the long run. Blessing is not merely the absence of punishment, but the presence of favor. Obedience is not something, something we simply do for God, but something we do with God as a way to experience more of Him. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And I just love those ideas, right? The first one there, that blessing, blessing when we're obedient is not simply the absence of punishment, but it's presence of the favor of God. That's a beautiful thing to consider. And the second thing we just need to remember in obedience is that obedience causes us to experience more of God, which is a joyful and blessed thing to do. Number two, this kind of feeds into this. Obedience is a sweet gift from God. I want you to wrestle with this one a little bit. So often we think of, and we sing about a lot, um, forgiveness as being the sweetest gift from God. And I think that truly is a wonderful thing, right? To be forgiven of all of our failure, all our sin, all the evil that's inside of me. That is a beautiful thing to sing and praise God for. But I would argue that obedience is even sweeter than forgiveness, Right? My greatest taste and joy in my life as I look back has been in obedience, not in forgiveness. And so let me give you a few examples of this just in my own life. So for example, when I am a better father because I emulate in that moment the kindness and the grace of God instead of my human inclination towards anger and impatience, that's a beautiful, sweet gift from God. Or when I grow in purity by resisting temptation for a look or a click, or a feel. That's um, something that is against, that's against God's design. That's a beautiful gift of God. Or when my frustration with a brother or sister in Christ turns into a wonderful time of praying for them instead, that's a beautiful and sweet gift from God. Right? These are all God's gifts falling from heaven in my life, 
And when we experience these things in what? We're experiencing them in obedience, right? Rather than coming back to God for forgiveness, forgiveness is sweet. But that moment where God, the Holy Spirit, helps you to overcome that thing that's in front of you, that temptation that's in front of you, that change that you know needs to be made in your life, that is a sweet, sweet thing to experience being made more like God. And here's number three, question for you, and this is a question that God was asking me this week as I studied. Do you love obedience? Scott Hubbard says, there are at least two ways to please the devil when it comes to the pursuit of holiness. The first way, of course, is to run from holiness altogether, to flee with the prodigal to the far country of this world, away from the Father's home. The second way, perhaps even more dangerous than the first, is to pursue holiness, or what we imagine holiness to be, and yet not be happy about it. That's a really good thing to think about isn't it? And I think this one's something that I often find myself praying about because maybe you're in the same boat as me. I think in the depth of my soul, I would say yes, right? Like I love obedience. I can look back in my life and I, I can know that it's always better for me, right? Not only in my circumstances, but more importantly in my soul and my walk with God. And yet I think if we're honest and I'm honest with myself, it's also really hard, isn't it? It's really hard at times. And It can be hard to love obedience when the other things that are right there are easier or they're more instantly gratifying. It becomes challenging. So this is one of those things I'm not saying, hey, look, I've got it all figured out. But it's me saying, hey, would you join with me in praying to God for your soul, for my soul, for the souls of our church that we would learn and continue to strive towards loving obedience together. And the fourth one is this, obedience from the inside out. We know that God works. That's the pattern of scripture, right? That God works from the inside out. That's what he cares about, right? He cares. He works on our heart. He works on our will. He works on our desires. He tells us over and over again what he cares about in scripture. And we see this here. Joe Rigney says, Paul's joy will be made complete if the Philippians have the same mindset, the same love, the same soul, the same single-mindedness, And in particular, he highlights what they're keeping an eye on. They look not to their own interests, but to the interests of others. They don't act from selfish ambition or pride or vainglory, but they count other people more significant than themselves. They place their happiness in the good of other people. That's the first part of the double vision, looking to the interests of others. The second part appears in Philippians 2.12. We look for the approval of God. Paul says, as you have always obeyed, not, o- not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. The Philippians were not obeying in order to impress Paul. They were obeying in order to please God. And so when we're obedient from the inside out, right, and we, and we love to be obedient, I think he says double vision. I actually think we have a triple vision, right? Three goals in mind, the good of others, right? The approval of God, right? You care about God thinks about you, what God says about you, not people. And number three is the glory of God, right? That's why we are to be devoted to these good works, that people would know how great God is. And these are the goals in our heart when we're obedient and devote ourselves to good works. So that's a little bit on obedience. We can't do that with every single word, but we see we're to be ready for every good work. We're to speak evil of no one. 
right? That comes back to some of the things that we were, men and women were told to do in the last section, right? Not slandering people, not gossiping, right? To avoid quarreling, right? To avoid quarreling, that's a good thing to consider. It's choosing not to spend time or energy arguing over things that don't matter for eternity, right? So I'll use an example that none of us are going through because we all love the nursery color. Does the nursery color matter in light of eternity? No, right? No, no. Well, pastor, if we don't want, we want the space to be warm and inviting and it will help young families feel comfortable. Yes, true. I like warm, inviting nurseries. But the nursery wall color isn't going to save anyone. I think we can agree on that, right? And you know what else the nursery wall color won't do? It won't drive serious Christians away from the church. But do you know what will drive serious Christians away from the church? A church family that fights and is divisive. And so let's remember that um, as we navigate life together, because so many churches, we laugh, but that's a real thing. Churches have split over carpet colors and wall colors, right? These are things that do not matter. And so I just, I think you guys are good at it, but I want to just encourage you, keep going in that direction. Let's not fight over wall colors. Next one is to be gentle. To be gentle. We looked at that a little bit in previous weeks. And then the last one is this, and it says to show perfect courtesy towards all people. And if you translate that literally, it literally renders as showing all meekness. Showing all meekness. And so, again, I want to give you a couple example definitions of meekness that hit on a few different points, because a lot of times we talk about meekness in the church, and nobody actually knows what it really means. So let's take a few different um, examples. It says this, meekness is essentially an attitude or quality of heart whereby a person is willing to accept and submit without resistance to the will and desire of someone else. In the case of Christians, this is God. The second um, example definition is this. They say, it's the idea of a horse being controlled by a bit and a bridle. The horse is choosing to submit to authority. That is meekness. It is power under constraint. I like that one. Three, biblical meekness, this is what it's rooted in. Biblical meekness is rooted in the deep confidence that God is for you and not against you. Christians, do you really believe this in the depth of your soul, that God's for you and not against you? We find that out when life is hard, isn't it? Next is this. Meekness is humility towards God and toward others. It's having the right or power to do something, but refraining for the benefit of someone else, right? That idea, again, of the body. So who's the ultimate example of meekness, right? We know this. It's Jesus. And what are we called to do? Be like Jesus, right? He is our example, right? We know the pattern in Scripture. We're supposed to be like God the Father and Jesus. There are examples, and then the Holy Spirit does the work of the change. That's the pattern that we see in Scripture. We're not only to be like God the Father. We're not only to be like Jesus. There's patterns, examples to be like both, and then the Holy Spirit's the one that works to enact that change in the lives of Christians, And so those are just a few examples, right? This is not an exhaustive list, but those are just a few examples of good works that we're to be devoted to as Christians. And so remember that this is what we're to do, and now we're going to talk about the why. Let's move to verses 3 through 7 together. I entitled this section in my notes, He versus We. And you can see there on the screen, 
I don't know how well it shows up, but I want you to see, I underlined all the we's and I underlined all the he's. So I want you to see the difference in what the Bible says about us, the we, apart from God, then the he, right, what God does for us, and then the we with God. That's what we're going to see here in this text. So let's start at that first we there, right, at the start. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another, right? This is what we were on our own. And Christians, I want to ask you, look back to this, think back to this in your life before God changed your heart, right? What was your heart like? Do you not identify with some of these things, right? And if you got saved at a young age, I would ask you this. It will accomplish a similar sort of thing. What does your life look, what does your life look like when you do things your way instead of God's way? It gives you a taste of these same things. And these are the things that end up happening, right? These things don't come out of a spirit-filled life. They come out of our sin, right? Either when we were apart from God or when we push God to the back and say, no, I'm going my own way, doing my own thing. I look at my own life in these things and say, yeah, yes, 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 right? We can, we can say, yes, this was my life apart from God. Donald Guthrie says, if Titus should despair of the Cretan character, he should remember his own past experience. For retrospect is often salutary in helping us to understand the magnitude of God's grace. This is what I want to encourage you in. Right? This is why we constantly remember what Jesus did for us. This is why we remember what we were apart from God. This is why we look at our sin so often. right? And so as uh, we lead our kids as we pray for our grandkids, as we disciple in the church, whenever you're tempted to be frustrated at someone's sin towards you, right, remember this. Remember your own past experience. Remember what you were apart from Christ. And that's going to help you marvel at the grace of God in your life, and that will help you give that grace to others as you go. So we see in ourselves nothing good. Right, but what do we see in God there in that next section, right in that next T in the red? We see the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appear. What did He do? Right? He saved us, right? God is the agent of our salvation. Right? We see that so clearly. He saved us. And then what do we see clearly next? We see it's not because of works done by us in righteousness, right? And that in itself is an oxymoron right? That we would do works in righteousness. Can we do works of righteousness apart from God? No, right? Because even the good things that we do apart from God are for what? They're for our glory, not for God's. But are we deserving of glory? No, right? The creator deserves the glory, not the creation. The artist gets the glory, not the painting, right? So when we do things for our own glory, we're actually taking the focus off of God. And so what are we doing? We're sinning, Right? And so we can't do works done by us in righteousness. But it says the what? But according to his own mercy. Right? That's the he. Right? And what does it say? By the washing of regeneration. Do you know that um, the word regeneration is another way of speaking about new birth, new life, right? being born again? And you remember this. We see this a lot in scripture. Why does the Bible tell us that we have to be born again? Because of what it tells us before, right? What does it tell us? 
that we are dead in our sins. I encourage you as you read through the Bible, look at all the times where it tells you that you're dead. You're spiritually dead in your sin apart from God. Right? And how do we know that? We're like, I don't know if that's true. Look at your life apart from God. You find out that is true. But what else we see is that God's plan one day is for everything to be regenerated, everything to have new life. So I want to think about that for a second, this word regeneration. There's only one other place in the Bible that this Greek word for regeneration is used, and it's in Matthew 19, 28. Jesus says to the 12 apostles, he says, truly, I say to you, in the new world, which is a very loose translation for in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so you all have heard the term new heavens, new earth, if you're familiar with scripture. Um, And this is what he's talking about. Jesus doesn't just tell us that humans are fallen and sinful and need to be renewed, but that everything has to be renewed. And the clearest text on this is in Romans 8. In Romans 8, it says this, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. What do we see here in this verse? What do we see? We see that God's purpose is one day that all creation will be reborn. All creation will be renewed. All creation will be regenerated. And so we see in Titus 3, 5, that our salvation, that the Holy Spirit doing that in us is part of this plan. It's, it's a foretaste. It's a first fruits. Um, John Piper says this, and he kind of sums it up. He says, when you think of new birth, think of it as the first installment of what is coming. Your body and the whole world will one day take part in this regeneration. God's final purpose is not spiritually renewed souls inhabiting decrepit bodies. Praise God for that, eh? As our bodies get decrepit. And disease in a disaster-ravaged world, right, which we see so clearly. His purpose is a renewed world with renewed bodies and renewed souls that takes all our renewed senses and makes them a means of enjoying and praising God. Christians, do not look forward to that day. I get goosebumps as I read that, just thinking about getting out of this mess, right? And one day being with God, enjoying him, praising him, that is going to be so, so glorious. And I'm so glad that that's a part of God's plan. And so let's keep going on in our text there. So we see who does the renewing in us, right? Who does the renewing us? It's the Holy Spirit, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So just pause for a moment, theology moment. When we think of salvation, we need to stop thinking about just Jesus, okay? In this text, we see very clearly the working of all parts of the Trinity in our salvation, right? So if you look at the he, who's the he in this? 
If you look at verse 6, it makes it very clear. It says, whom he poured out richly on us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So the he isn't Jesus. Who's the he? It's God the Father, right? That salvation was ordained by God the Father. And then through, the work was done through Jesus Christ on the cross, right? At the cross and at the tomb. And then, right, what does the Holy Spirit do in us? It does the work of, the Holy Spirit, he does the work of renewal in us. So we see all parts of the Trinity working together in salvation, in the heart of believers. And we get to the end, and we see the, the, the we that we have because of what Jesus did for us, right? In the end, we get to it, and we realize from the start that it's something that we clearly don't deserve, right? It's clearly only because of God that we're saved. And then what does it say? That we might become heirs, that we become royalty, that we become family with God and each other because we have this hope of eternal life. And so here's what it all boils down to. Because of the salvation that we never deserved, that's what Paul's showing them, right? Then we're compelled to be devoted to good works because we've received something that we didn't deserve so that we would go out and live not for us because we were dead, but that we've been given a second chance, we've been given new life, that we would go out and live for God. And part of living for God is being devoted to good works for others. And so then we see the result of good works as we keep moving along in the text, right? So the result of the gospel is good works. And you can see it clearly here, that those who have believed in God may carefully devote themselves to good works, And I just wanted to show you the whole text here, and I want you to see all the places that it talks about good works. Um, People that were in the hermeneutics class, which I know you're all missing terribly. It was a lot of fun. Um, One of the things that we talked about in the class is that you're looking for words that are repeating. Because when words repeat in a text, you know that that's what it's talking about. And so see all all the words here that are talking about good works, to be ready for every good work not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. What's that? That's the good work that God did, right? So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works and let our people learn to devote themselves to what? To good works. You get the point, right? It's pretty clear, isn't it? We are to be devoted to good works. The gospel wasn't given to us for no good reason, right? It was given to us so that the good works may come alive in our life. Um, We... Uh, a bunch of us went to a conference that Feb Central puts on, and uh, one of the speakers told a story that I think was very helpful. Um, he talked about a crane, and he used this example of a crane, and he talked about how cranes, they need a strong base, right? And they got to have some width to them and some, uh, some heaviness to them, and Bill knows this. Well, right, you don't want your crane to tip over, right? Why? You need that good, strong base. Why? Because the goal of the crane is to reach out, right? And so in us, in the gospel, that we would be grounded in the gospel, right? That's the good thing. But we need to take that and we need to reach out to others. We were given this gospel, not just to hoard it in the church and only hang out with church people and only talk to church people, kind of like that video is talking about, right? We need to do what? We, we're given this strong base. We're trying to build this in the church for what purpose? So that we as a church would go out, right? 
Let's have the strong base. That's the gospel that we would reach far together. That's part of the good works. Right? We want to be devoted to good works. And we see it here so clearly, right? For people. Right? We know that good works are for God's glory. We know that one of the residual effects of good works is they're also for our good. But Paul reminds us here that it's also for others. Right? The Christian witness is strengthened by how we treat our community, by how we treat our neighborhood, and by how we treat our church. They're all important. And so we have to ask our things, are the things that we do profitable and excellent for others? Or do we only do things that are profitable and excellent for ourselves. And then as we move on in the text, we get some examples of the opposite of good works, right? And this is interesting um, because we know that when Paul was writing to Titus, we looked at this in the first couple of weeks, elders, he says this to Titus specifically, he says, elders, um, we know that they're supposed to be people who are unafraid um, and also able to expose error that contradicts sound doctrine, right? That's from Titus 1. At the same time, there be to be men who avoid quarreling, right? Our text today, Titus 3.2. And then they're also supposed to not get up, get caught up in foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, Titus 3.9. And so it's a good reminder for us as elders in how to do this. But I also want to encourage you to do this too. That it's right and good to wrestle through doctrine with your Christian friends. Right, I have many great uh, memories of high school, sitting on a buddy's couch, watching hockey, and by the second period, we're talking doctrine and wrestling through um, the things of the Lord together. But I want to encourage you, make sure the things you're wrestling through are really worth your time, and they shouldn't just be avoided altogether. And number two, make sure that as you wrestle through the finer points of theology, that this doesn't outweigh your time encouraging each other as Christians in the gospel and the things that are clear in scripture that we are all commanded to do. Do those things first. Have your friendship built off of that and then also wrestle through things together with them. Also remember this when you're wrestling through things and you're talking with your non-Christian friends, right? Because we know like from 1 Peter, it's good to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. Uh, but John MacArthur also reminds us of this. He says, proclaiming truth not arguing error is the biblical way to evangelize. And I thought that was such a good reminder for me even. Because so often it's easy to get caught up debating people in all the things that they're wrong about. And I think there's a place for that. Um, a big chunk of my master's was apologetics. I think it's helpful, right? But let's remember, let's not lose sight of what we're supposed to do. What are we supposed to do as Christians when we evangelize? We proclaim the truth. Right? That's what we're called to do. Over and over in the gospel, what does it say? It says to proclaim the gospel, to herald the gospel. That's what the word um, preaching actually means. Preaching means to herald, right? And so we're to herald the gospel over and over again. And then we see this. Division is an enemy of the gospel in good works. Titus 3, 10 through 11. I want to show you this one more time. One more theme that I wanted to show you in this that I thought was very interesting as I studied. It came up a number of times. I want you to see how seriously God takes division. Look at how seriously he takes it in this one little text 
that he's writing to the church to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, right? What did we do in our old sin? In, well, apart from God, we passed our days in malice and envy, hated by others, hating one another. But then what does it say? So that being justified by his grace, we may become heirs in the hope of eternal life, right? That's the opposite of division. That's the family part, right? That's the together that we get being with God. And then what does it say there? Dissensions, avoid those, quarrels about the law, right? And then we see our last part here as well. As a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He's self condemned division god takes extremely seriously and unity is incredibly important to god and i want to give you a few examples why if you remember a while ago we talked about unity did a sermon on it Um, but here's a few of the cole's notes from john 17 if you um, don't remember those in john 17 we know that jesus is doing what he's praying right he's praying for us Um, and this is what he says i do not ask for these things only but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who's he praying for? Who will believe in me? Christians, right? That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, so that they may also be in us, so that the world might believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me that we may be that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Three things I want you to notice this. The first one's evangelism. It says it in two different parts. Jesus prays this very close together so that the world may believe that you sent me, right? Our unity apparently according to Jesus, is one of the most untapped evangelistic tools that the church has, right? That as we are unified, that the world would believe that Jesus sent him or that God sent Jesus. And then second, look again at the bottom so that the world may know that you sent me. And then there's, he says this too, and love them. And love them even as you have loved me. That they would know, the world would know that they are loved like God Love Jesus through the unity of the church. That's crazy. That's crazy. The second one's this. If you look in the middle section there, it says, the glory that you have given me as I have given to them. Some of you will remember this, but unity is given to the church. We don't create it in ourselves. It's given by God, and our job is to guard it. Our job as a church is to keep it. And I just want you to notice this bonus content, that part of the glory that God has given to Jesus is unity. Do you see that there so clearly? Right? The glory that you have given me, I have given them. What's part of the glory? It's unity. So when we think about the glory of God and what makes God glorious, part of what makes God glorious is unity. And he's giving us unity to the church that we would guard it together. And then number three, we're to reflect God himself as seen in the Trinity, right? That they may be one, unified, even as we are one. We are to reflect God himself. And so let's read this one more time. 
As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. You don't really need very insightful exegesis to know what this means, do you? It means that the person who causes divisions in the church demonstrates by their actions that they're not really a Christian, that they don't really know the gospel or they wouldn't do it, that when they were confronted, they would realize that what they're doing is warped and sinful and wrong, and they would repent in turn. And so here's my question to you right now because I care about you deeply. Do you have divisions with others? Are there divisions right now in your life with others? It could be family. It could be extended family. It could be church family. And if you do, I want to encourage you, I want to exhort you to go in all humility and repair those relationships. Right? This is what God was telling me. He said, Mark, your pride, my pride, it's not worth the cost to God's church. It's not. Our pride is not worth the cost to God's church where we go and repair those relationships. You say, they, that person won't talk to me, then you forgive them in your heart. And you hold that posture of love towards them that when they come and they're ready to seek forgiveness, that there's reconciliation. That's what God does for us, is it not? He always is... He's always ready. He's always willing to forgive. He holds that posture to us. And then when we come and we confess our sin, there's reconciliation there. And use this, I would encourage you, right? Next time you're annoyed with someone in the church, and that's going to happen, right? Because we're all sinful people, right? Striving together. Just weigh God's words carefully. And I want to encourage you to choose to guard unity in the body next time that happens. Because here's the reality. This, was, this is what ties this whole thing together. I hope you get this. We're called to be devoted to good works together. Right? Our whole series, what have we looked at? We've looked at how we're to act as the body. This is how they were to set up their church. Right? There on Crete. Right? They were to set up their churches in this way. We're called to do good works together in the body. Do you, do you wonder why he put so much emphasis on division? When he was writing to them, have you ever thought about that? Why, is, why are the two big themes devoted to good works and then division? It's because division is an enemy of the gospel and good works. Why? It can only be an enemy if we were called to do it together. We're called to be devoted to good works together as a church. And together looks different sometimes, doesn't it? Sometimes that's physically coming alongside someone else. Sometimes that's encouraging someone. Sometimes that's reminding them of God's word. Sometimes that's praying for someone. But Calvary, I just want to encourage you. Let's continue as a body. Let's strive together to be devoted to good works. Let's pray. God, we come before you. And I pray right now for those who have divisions in their life, whether it's with a spouse or kids, family, extended family, people in the church, God, especially. I pray, God, that you would help them. Give them the courage and the strength 
the power of your Holy Spirit to go in all humility, God, and to repair those relationships. God, you know this. I have to pray this every week. Would you kill my pride? Would you kill our pride as people? Our pride is a nasty thing. My pride is a nasty thing. It keeps me from obedience in so many ways. God, I pray that that would not be true of our body of believers here. God, would you kill our pride? Would you humble us? Lord, as we remember what you did for us on the cross and at the empty tomb, that you died, God, in my place, all the evil that I had done, all the evil that I was deserving to die for you, you instead chose to die, die for me, so that I could be with you both now and in eternity. God, we're so grateful for that. Would we remember the gospel? Would we not get tired of hearing the gospel? Would the gospel continue to motivate us? God, I pray for soft hearts today, that as we looked at the gospel and what you have done versus who we are, God, would we be so would we be so grateful? Would we be motivated? God, would it, we be compelled? Would it be the only thing that makes sense to run after you, God, to live for you, to strive after you with everything? Lord, we pray that for our church. Pray all these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.